You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I was thinking that maybe we need Visions of Education merchandising. Yeah, that would be pretty good. I mean, I feel like we need to start making a profit off this thing, right? Yeah, because we do have a lot of, actually, we pay a lot of money to do this. Yeah, we got the, but, sa- the SoundCloud account, we've got the website. Man, it, it, it adds up. So here's what I'm thinking, and tell me what you think. Education philosopher baseball cards. That's pretty good. That's pretty. I think people, right? I think young kids would want to buy that, right? That's way yes. way more interesting than like athletes or um, other important who people want in society, Godsky, right? Yeah, yeah. He's so got you have, stones. Yeah. So who are the baseball cards? That's the question. Who do we have on See, the cards? That's, that's what I was thinking. So obviously Vygotsky, right? Because the zone's approximate development. That's just kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I feel like that's who we are. We are Vygotskys, or we are zones of proximal development. We're zones of proximal development. <laughs> That's why we have guests. So, so we yeah. There's there's so a lot of good people from educational history. We could we could have baseball cards for right. So we could have yeah. We could have Lev Vygotsky. We could have Jean Piaget. Right. Some a um, little bit on cognitive development. We could have John Dewey's philosophy of education. Dewey. Yeah. Okay. Abraham Maslow. We could have you know we've mentioned him before. Is oh he's right. His hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was interesting that his name was Maslow, but you want to be high on that, right? Yeah, and so it should be Maz, Maz High. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's and it'd pretty be Mashai because it, you'd put the S and the H together. So I don't know if that would work. Yeah, you seem to put a lot of thought into that. I actually put a lot of forethought going into this. <laughs> uh, Howard Gardner, multiple intelligences. Benjamin Bloom. Signed Bloom, right? Yeah. Bloom, I mean, the concept of Bloom, it's really cool because I kind of enjoy spring. I don't know. I feel like we got a lot of good baseball. Or, yeah, that's. I can't think of any many other people, right? I think we covered most everyone, didn't we? So, Which, gentlemen, all the major I, I hate to rain oh. on your parade here, but I'm noticing a certain Uh-oh. pattern in all the names that you're brainstorming. I don't know if you happen to notice, but all of the names that you mentioned happen to belong to men. Hmm. Oh. I got them all for my Michael. Michael came up with the list. It wasn't me. That was that was Michael's. <laughs> but yeah, doing. you're right. Um, <laughs> we have. Not- Man, I guess sometimes we don't talk about um, women in educational history nearly as much, considering the field is primarily female. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing coincidence. It's a. It's a profession dominated by women, but when we think about names, whether it be history or popular people or authors, we tend to default to dead white guys. Wait, mm. well, Gar- I think Gardner's still alive. Yeah, I think he is. We <laughs> defaulted with him, but I think we should actually probably tell people who you are. Typically, I we did. invite guests into it. I know you kind of went the other way. We're, you know, we're totally cool with. That that kind of happens when we um, are sitting on our male patriarchy thrones talking about education history. So we we got to get knocked off those. And so, um, welcome to the podcast, Jen Bennis. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I take great delight in knocking down patriarchal crown or thrones. So I um, I'm on Twitter as as Jen Bennis. 
I started as a special ed teacher. I am very much uh, the stereotypical teacher. I am a white woman from rural, well, suburban America who went to a state college uh, 100 miles from my home. I was a special ed teacher and uh, ended up being a TOSA for a couple years. And one thing led to another, and I started working for a small consulting firm. And so my day job is to help schools design authentic and meaningful assessment. From nine to five, I'm all about curriculum design and meaningful, authentic, relevant portfolio assessments, things like that. But when Common Core happened, I became very fascinated with the history of standards in New York State. So I'm a New Yorker, and I became really fascinated by the history of standards and the history of the New York State regions, and thus my hobby was born. So I'm here today representing my podcast, Ed History 101, and speaking to all things Ed History with a feminist bent. And I'm going to go ahead and just plug your podcast right up front. It is tremendous. I really enjoy listening to it. And I have like a great image of how you record your podcast. I feel like it's like you and your husband sitting on like a porch, drinking some wine. And it just feels very conversational and enjoyable. But you walk through a lot of important things in educational history. And and unlike our podcast, your podcast is like grounded in your deep knowledge of topics. Michael and I just bring on people who know more than us. That's like our whole thing. Well, we need both kinds of podcasts and education to be sure. And we're learning. Yeah, we only have the skills. Yeah, we only have the skill set for one of the two options. So, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and some of the things you've covered. Um, you, you have a lot of really great episodes. Well, actually, where it all started is that um, I was doing some research and I kept like running, you know, into my husband's a chef, and so his uh, his hobby is cooking. As so I kept running to the kitchen, saying, "Honey, do you know where grades from? Wait till I get, let me tell you what I discovered." And so we made a list. And so our first season was the episodes we just wanted to talk about. And podcasting, as you guys know, takes a lot of time. I haven't yet created baseball cards to make money for my podcasting. So um, I've eased off a bit on the podcasting, and I've been focused on uh, the last couple months on just doing thread tweets. Um, so tweet threads. So I've been focused the last couple months on doing a, every day a series of tweets about a person from educational history. So last month I focused on black educators. This month I'm focusing on women in history. And kind of the big idea that I pursue in my podcast and kind of in my hobby work is that despite dominating the profession, women really aren't represented, uh, not in leadership positions, not with rock star reputations, uh, not in research, but we're there, but not in any meaningful way. And we brainstorm names, we think of men, and that's something that I want to change. Your tweets have been fantastic. I've, I've been following them and I've directed some of my students in my classes to follow them. During Black History Month, you highlighted a lot of educators that probably a lot of people don't hear about. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about some of the women leaders and philosophers and theorists and teachers that have made a difference in education over the years? Sure. So, Michael, the name Dewey tripped off your tongue. Like, we, we mentioned Dewey. Everybody knows Dewey. That's but what right. a lot of people don't know is a woman named Anna Julia Cooper. And Anna Julia Cooper wasn't a progressive in the way that Dewey was, but she had a passion and an idea for education that it's, it's a shame. I mean, I, I can't think of any other word. It is a crying shame that people don't rattle off Cooper's name the same way they rattle off Dewey. She was a, a black woman in D.C. She started D.C.'s first black high school. There's a great book called First Class, all about M School in D.C., and so Anna Julia Cooper is one of these women that we all should know. I mean, unequivocally, her name should just roll off our tongue the same way others do. And 
you know, there's an issue of, yes, 75% of the profession is, uh, I always get my, always get the statistics reversed. I think it's 75% female and 85% white, I think is what it is. I think that sounds correct. That also raises issues around intersectionality because not only is the profession dominated by women, it's dominated by white women. And that has a whole other set of issues to talk about. And so it sounds silly that to think we can change the world by remembering names from history. But I believe if Anna Julia Cooper rolled off our tongue the way John Dewey does, we'd be having very different conversations around education. Can you explain to us what you mean by intersectionality? It's often used when we talk about feminism, right? Sure. Can you tell us what intersection intersectionality means to you? Well, for me, when we talk about demographics like race and like gender, it's none of us sit inside just one demographic bucket. So a black woman is both black and a woman. So the idea of intersectionality is to acknowledge that Anna Julia Cooper is both a black activist and is a female activist, that those two things can coexist and we don't have to put her in one bucket. And the flip side of that is that when we celebrate Women's History Month, we're not just celebrating the celebrities who are white, who are wealthy. Um, That's one of the challenges that come up when we look at suffragists. Many of the suffragists were racist, and there's no other way to put that politely. Uh, they saw uh, giving black men the right to vote as, you know, uh, a fate worse than them never being able to vote. So there's those tensions. And ed history is something we kind of have to negotiate. And there's a great woman by the name of Gerda Lerner. And Gerda Lerner uh, pretty much invented the idea of women's studies in American history. And so what she did is came up with a bunch of questions And her very first question is where and who are the missing women in history? And so intersectionality reminds us that when we ask that question, we don't just think about women who look like us, we think about all women. And so this would go back all the way to thinking about Seneca Falls, right? It's often like titled like the first, you know, movement towards women's rights, women's suffrage, but it wasn't all women that were really included in Seneca Falls, right? It was primarily white, well-to-do women who were the ones who were often represented. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned Seneca Falls because concurrent to Seneca Falls, there were a fantastic group of black women that were opening schools uh, for black children, and their names are often lost to history. So there's a woman named Nanny Burroughs who created a school for girls who wanted to become teachers and only taught black girls to become black teachers. So there's this whole concurrent history to Seneca Falls. We teach Seneca Falls and the white women and their white dresses, but there's this whole other kind of incredible work that was happening that we just, for some reason, well, I, I know the reason, but we don't talk about. Michael, you've taught U.S. history before, right? That's true. To think of the first kind of like intersectional, like primary document that often gets used but not really talked in those terms is Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman? Oh, right. Because she talks about both her being what it means to be a woman, but also what it means to be a black woman. And so I think students get a little bit of glimpse there, but we don't do a good job of like helping touch that message on where, for example, black women are not represented in the suffrage movement and other things like that. Uh That's a really good point. And I I think that's also that we need to be mindful when we, uh, when we bring this up and, and who we bring into the classroom. So Anna J. Cooper is definitely someone who I had not heard of 
and I'm glad that I do now, and I definitely will do some more research. What are some other women uh, in education who are names that should be on those baseball cards? Uh, one of the challenges that I always struggle with when we talk about Ed History is the, the baseball card challenge. I kind of want to rattle off a bunch of names and, you know, oh, there's this amazing woman and this amazing woman. And and so it's it's very tempting. But if Twitter account this month will be full of women like that. But uh, one of the other women who's quite uh, fantastic is a woman named Maria Child. And Maria Child, I actually did a thread about her today. She was anti-racist, anti-patriarchy, pro-rights of enslaved people, pro-rights of Native Americans in the 1820s. She she wrote the first historical novel ever. And one of the interesting things about Ed history is because women couldn't teach after they got married, the turnover rate was incredibly high. And so at one point in Massachusetts history, 80% of the white women were teachers or had been a teacher at some point in their life around the 1850s. And it was because there was constant turnover. So pretty much every woman that we think about uh, probably was a teacher at some point in her life. And Maria Child was a teacher. She helped open schools. Um, One of the schools that Maria Child helped open was the first integrated classroom in New England. And I'm going to be tweeting about the teacher who did that later on in the month. And it's just, she's just a an absolutely fantastic person. But when you she actually wrote a really number of very interesting pamphlets about um, the rights of enslaved people and Native Americans, and had a very persuasive voice that should be studied as a primary text as opposed to you know that Hawthorne guy that everybody likes to read. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of um, the story of Sarah Roberts. Do you talk? Do you guys talk about Sarah Roberts much in Massachusetts, Michael? No, I don't know who Sarah so that, Roberts is, and I. So it's 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 amazing to me because essentially, um, you know, Sarah Roberts was a, a young black girl who her and her father wanted her to attend. Um, the school closest to where she lived, but she was black, and so they wouldn't let her, and they had her walk you know, across town to a segregated school. And her story is so similar to Linda Brown's story from 100 years later. And what always blows my mind is that Massachusetts, based on her case, ended up desegregating schools in the 1850s, before the Civil War was over, before the Civil War had started. And I always find it amazing to think that we would, a full century would go before... Um, Brown vs. Board would happen. Mm-hmm. And that story, again, for some reason, is just not told very often. Yeah, Sarah's story is quite remarkable. And one of the things that's interesting, Dan, that you, you mentioned how Massachusetts uh, desegregated, but the law was desegregation, but they culturally resegregated. So there was another lawsuit in the 1950s in Massachusetts to force desegregation. So there's these cycles that we keep repeating again and again, and it's my hope that if we get more precise and are talking about ed history, we can break some of those cycles and we can say, we've been here before, let's change the narrative. Yeah, and um, there's a great reporter named Nicole Hannah-Jones. Oh, love her, love her. She She's amazing and she's been reporting on segregation, integration, resegregation issues, and she's done a lot of great stuff. We'll link in the show notes. And, you know, after reading a lot of her, her work, it just it always comes back to me to that integration is one of the most critical issues in education. And maybe you can make the case it's arguably the most proven way to improve school experiences is to, to improve the results for all students yeah. is to integrate in the right ways. 
we talk about segregation of schools, but there's also the segregation of teaching faculties. And the idea that because we're not, we perceive that teaching is something that white women do. So how do we kind of change that narrative so that every black child has a black teacher multiple times throughout their lives so that every white child has an Asian teacher and Hispanic teacher and a black teacher that they don't just see white lady faces in front of the classroom. We had uh, David Johns, uh, who used to work for um, the uh, Secretary of Education in the Obama White House. And I know that he had been talking a lot about uh, getting, um, you know, so trying to make the profession not just, you know, white teachers. Seems like it does not reflect the students that we have. And that's another legacy of, of even Brown vs. Board, you know, that, that often isn't talked about is how many black teachers in particular were run out of the profession. Um, because schools with white students, oftentimes the parents would not, didn't want black teachers yeah. there. And so we, we, we always talk about the, the positive things that come out of Brown versus Board, but the immediate experience for the black community was not all that positive yeah. um, for both black students who faced a lot of uh, um, racism and stereotyping and other things in, as students in schools, and then black teachers who just lost their jobs. 38,000, it's estimated that 38,000 black teachers lost their job as a direct result of Brown versus Board. And it was things like, um, one of the tweet threads I did in Black History Month, uh, there was a story about a principal, um, he was, uh, he'd been a principal of a black academy for 25 years, a highly successful, uh, the school was going very well, you know, his kids were going on to Ivy League, a very successful program. Schools were integrated and he was demoted to being a seventh grade social studies teacher, which is a respectful thing, but he had been a high school principal for 25 years. And so a lot of the black educators were forced to choose. Do you take a demotion in order to stay teaching or do you leave? And so in that number of 38,000 are, um, they call it the displacement. So they were displaced because they were demoted. Uh, One football coach went from being the head of a, a winning black football team, schools were integrated, he became the assistant to the assistant of the JV team because he was black and all the other coaches were white, even though his record was better than it was for the, the white coach. So one of the challenges that I sometimes find in history is to, I find myself getting caught up in, so you know, how, what do we do differently now? We know these things happen, so how can we learn from history? And for me, it really keeps going back to elevating voices. So for Maria Montessori, a lot of people know of Montessori, but the fact that we mentioned Dewey more than we mentioned Montessori, I don't want to be a, you know, a bra-burning feminist, but that's institutional sexism that we drop Dewey's name before we go to Montessori. And it's, it's hard to see it as anything else, which is, which is frustrating because there's so many, so many incredible women that did such great work, but their names are utterly lost to history. I don't know though, Michael, I've got to find out who the women were at the same time as Maslow and Piaget, because I'm not sure there were any, but I'm going to try to find them. <laughs> so we have a lot of college professors who also, particularly Ed, college professors who also listen to our, our podcast. Um, now, I know that elevating voices uh, is something that you are interested in doing. Um, is there any other, like, uh, tell us another story. Give us another voice that should be brought into the education courses. So for your college professors, if you come across a college professor from Oberlin, 
Oberlin College deserves all the praise. Uh, pretty much every uh, black female educator from the mid 1800s who changed the world or changed her world went to Oberlin. Oberlin uh, took was the only college that was accepting black women uh, for professional tracks. And so Oberlin is a, a fantastic college. And one of the things that's fascinating about ed history is the impact of the Committee of Ten. So the Committee of Ten in 1892 really set the look for, uh, you know, K through 12, or actually it was first through 12 at the time, and, and having segmented courses, you know, the liberal arts focus with math and science and social studies. And one of the things that's, that it always cracked me up is that sitting on the Committee of Ten was a representative from one of the, the sister colleges, one of the all-female colleges. But of course, they sent a, my, a male professor. They didn't oh, send goodness. one of the women from one of the women's colleges, they sent a male professor. But there is a woman named uh, Charlotte Hawkins Brown. And Charlotte Hawkins Brown was from the Massachusetts area and she established a school as a teacher college called the Palmer Institute. And she fundraised for her college by singing in the summer resorts in Massachusetts. So in the summer, she would sing and dance, she'd raise money, and then in the school year, she would teach. And the neat thing about Charlotte is she was um, a huge admirer of Alice Freeman Palmer, who was then the president of Wesley. And for me, what that speaks to is the sisterhood, that there are many of the women that will talk about in ed history, their story will overlap with another woman's story. And there are incredible networks. So the networks that Maria Child started way back in the 1820s, they endured up until the 1870s. So the women that she mentored and the women that she supported, they're very tightly linked. And so every story that we tell will link up with other stories. So around men like Vygotsky and Piaget, I am confident, I don't know her name yet, but I'll figure it out, that there is a female quote unquote assistant who actually did most of the work you know, or who did a lot. Yes. I remember that. I don't remember her name. I remember theirs, of course, but I, I remember us talking about that in one of my ed courses. And even with, with John Dewey, a, an associated name that doesn't get talked about near enough is Ella Flagg Young, who did a lot with the, you know, she was the superintendent of Chicago schools, the first female superintendent of a major school system in the U.S. And she was really integral in actually implementing a lot of the quote-unquote progressive ideas, the learning by doing ideas in the laboratory school mm -hmm. that Dewey often gets so much credit for. And there's some people that think that she actually should deserve, get, should get a lot more of the intellectual credit, but didn't get it at the time because of her gender. Yeah. And the, the you raise a very important point there that Dewey only happened because the conditions were made possible and she made them possible for him. And I think if memory serves, and I'm going to double check. I think Ella Young is one of the women who married but never had children, if memory served. There's a large number of women in history. So even Maria Child didn't have children. Um, so there are a, a large number of women in history who either didn't get married or chose not to have children or expand their family because to do both was frowned upon. And one kind of small moment that remains one of my absolute favorite moments from education history is a woman named Bridget Pichetto. And Bridget Pichetto was an immigrant. She was a New York City school teacher. And Bridget Pichetto got pregnant, as one is wont to do after one gets married. And she had a choice. 
she could either tell her principal that she had to take some time off to deal with the baby, or she could lie and say she was going on a cruise or to visit a sick relative. And she decided to tell the truth. And because she told the truth, she got fired. Bridget Pacheco was actually the impetus for the lawsuit that made it illegal for New York City to fire teachers for getting pregnant. And her name doesn't appear in case law, but it appears in a policy footnote uh, in the New York State Commissioner's Regulations back in uh, about 1919, I believe. And because of her, this little young immigrant teacher, uh, teachers can no longer be fired for getting pregnant in New York City. Wow. It was a lot of a lot of other things had to happen, but that was one of them. Bridget Pacheco. That's that's an incredible story, and again, those are those names that made such a difference um, in the field. And we need again, we need to elevate those and bring them out. I don't know if you've um, I used the book The Teacher Wars oh. by Dana Goldstein in in my class. And I, one thing I do like about it is how many women it does highlight in the book. Um, I was just thinking off the top of my head, it's from Catherine Beecher to Susan B. Anthony to Charlotte Fortin, Anna Julia Cooper, Margaret Haley, Ella Flagg Young are all. Um, you know, uh, have prominent roles within the book, and it does tell a lot of their stories. I always think Margaret Haley doesn't get near the credit and discussion that she should get um, for the the role she played in, in fighting for teachers' rights yeah. and ensuring like equal pay and and you know um, uh, quality working conditions. All of those things were so important, and the, a lot of unionizing and discussion of tenure and things like that. She was integral in all of that. And she's just not talked about that much. Yeah. The uh, teacher wars was my gateway drug. So <laughs> uh, Dana's book was kind of my, one of my, the, the regions got me interested in it, but it was uh, the teacher wars that really got me hooked into devoting a lot of my free time to ed history. That's a singing endorsement. We'll make sure to link the, uh, <laughs> we'll make sure to link the book on our, our show notes. Yeah, definitely. And like this podcast, it's available in audiobook too, so you can listen to it. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe we could just hit up Dana Goldstein for some of her profits. We're sending so many people her way. Maybe maybe that's the way we, we make some money out of this. So oh, she's now she's now a New York Times reporter, so we'll have uh, we'll be able to look forward to more of her writing on a regular basis. In the teacher wars, Michael, the one of the early cases for women as teachers was it was twofold. One, there was this like demonization of men that the only men who went and taught were like these drunkard, terrible guys who couldn't do anything else. But then there's also this like glorification of women in this like kind of patriarchal sexist way where women are like these nurturing, perfect, angelic figures who can handle all children. But really the real reason women primarily became teachers is because it was cheaper and they could pay them less like the real reason because men it was because the u.s teacher workforce was primarily men and like overwhelmingly men and then um katherine beecher and horace mann said well how about women could be cheap labor and everyone said that's a great idea and we've been dealing with low teacher pay ever since yeah it's it's a fascinating whole um katherine beecher and you did a nice job on the gender episode talking about beecher because beecher is a bit oh, of a she's a she's a character that is for sure well but it's interesting. One of my students, we were talking about her, and she used the phrase, she was a woman of her time. And she definitely embodied the sexism of her time, too, right? Like, she has these moments where she, she like, wants to put women forward and, you know, allow them opportunities. And then she talks about women, and she's very okay with the domestic sphere, um, you know, continuing on. So that's why it's so fun to learn about Susan B. Anthony in Chapter 2 of Dana Goldstein's book. Oh, the funny thing about when we use, we'll say she's a woman of her time. 
it, it kind of allows us to say, well, we have to forgive her because she's a woman of her time, and mm-hmm. that's what they thought then. But women like Maria Child, who is actively and openly anti-racism and anti-racist mm-hmm. in the 1820s, belays that. Like, you can't... So sometimes we're a bit too forgiving of our, you know, our foremothers because sure. you know, we want to kind of... But Anna Julia Cooper, one of my favorite things about Anna Julia Cooper is... She was really said, no holds barred, listen to black women. If you want to know <laughs> the right thing to do, listen to black women. And it's just, oh, she's such a great author. Okay, so in her, she wrote a, an autobiography that is quite fantastic. So on your podcast, you always give your husband, Paul, a pop quiz at the end. Could you bring that tradition to our podcast today? I would be honored to. So here's how today's pop quiz is going to work. I'm going to read you a quote. And then I would like you guys to tell me which paragon, male paragon of Ed history, said this particular quote. Mm, okay. okay. <laughs> so I will tell you your three choices ahead of time, and then I will read you the quote. Um, was this said by John Dewey, Benjamin Bloom, or Horace Mann? Okay, so here's the quote. Is woman not fitted to commence the first work in the temple of education. Was that Dewey, Bloom, or Man? I don't so want it to be to... Bloom because, again, he reminds me of spring. <laughs> but I'm going to go with Man. I, and I would have guessed, my initial guess is Man because that sounds like the kind of language he used. But I have like a feeling it's like Dewey and you're tricking us. <laughs> it was Man. Yes. Uh, it Man. And it was interesting about Horace Mann's, uh, with his partnership with uh, Catherine Beecher, is that they very much played into that feminine archetype, that women couldn't proselytize in the church, they couldn't be pastors, but they could become teachers. And this is how they could change the world. Uh, And Dewey actually was, as much as he could be for the time period, a feminist and one of the founding members of the NAACP. So John Dewey was a was a pretty all-around good guy. Uh, but yeah, it was Horace Mann who believed the temple of education was best suited to women. Oh. <laughs> and that nurturing kind of missionary spirit that that Mann and Beecher had is why oftentimes we seem to have education as a calling, not a profession yes. where we get paid paid what we should. Exactly. And that's, I think, one of the things that we can do today is stop talking about education as a calling. Stop talking about the sacrifices that teachers make to be teachers. It's it's a profession. It's a job. It's incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly difficult. But it is not a calling. Uh, or if you're going to call it a calling, be aware of the price that you're paying by presenting it as a profession that's a calling. I want the pay that lawyers get as a calling. <laughs> yeah, yes. yes, those lawyers that are called to be lawyers. <laughs> well, listen, Jen Venice, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, my pleasure. And also, I'm going to have a piece coming out soon in Nursing Cleo on the history of the school bathrooms. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that'll be coming out pretty soon, I hope. So where else can our, our listeners find you or your work online? Uh, probably the best place is Twitter, uh, Jen Bennis or Ed History 101, you know, our website. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Okay. And again, we will link those and her notes to our show notes. So it's going to be a fantastic treasure trove of information. 
That it hopefully will be. And you can uh, subscribe to her Ed History podcast on iTunes, or you can listen to it with her show notes and other information on her site at history101.com, correct? Yes. All right. right. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we definitely hope to continue that discussion on Twitter and in other spaces. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. So we're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. Tweet us at Visions of Education. If you're doing something creative in education or you just want to say hi, we'll say hi back. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or really wherever you would like. We're there for you. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And we, Please do so. It, We have one. Okay, we are going to read a five-star review on the air. Do you have it, Michael? I do. So, yes, we do have a five-star review, and this is it. Relevant and enlightening, Dan and Mike deliver an authentic research on the most current topics in education. Woo! Thanks, guys, for saving me from multiple hours of research and the fact-checking. I truly enjoy the diverse multi-panel discussions that broaden me to elevate my own disposition on current ed issues. Most of all, Dan and Mike keep students first without throughout each podcast. The guys always find a perfect combination of taking each ed issue and tailoring the information to tangible and applicable teaching tools for our students. Thank you both for fostering a community of informed teachers and prioritizing students. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm very proud. Tiffany is one of my excellent students that I've had in my classes before. So follow her lead and leave, your, leave a five-star review. It'll help people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.